0: Hey guys, and welcome back to the Unknown Friends podcast. Today you have tuned into Season 2, Episode 30, and I'm so glad you've joined me for this week's discussion of William Shakespeare's play, The Merchant of Venice. I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson of Kitty Wayne Productions, and if you ever want to learn more about me and the plays I write, just visit my website, kittywayneproductions.com. Now, today's episode is the second in a two part discussion of Shakespeare on the podcast. In these two episodes, we are discussing two quite different plays, but if you haven't yet listened to last week's episode on the tragedy Julius Caesar, I would recommend that you listen at least to the first 10 or 15 minutes, just because in that time, I shared some general background information that's helpful for any discussion of Shakespeare, just some things about his life and career and writing style, And a few general thoughts about his literary legacy and why his work is worth studying. So, I'm not going to repeat that information in this episode, but it does apply to our study of The Merchant of Venice. So, just know that you can catch that introductory material if you listen to the beginning of last week's episode. Now, on to today's play in question The Merchant of Venice. This is one of Shakespeare's comedies, but it has some darker elements than many of his comedies. Let's quickly put it in the context of his other works. So Julius Caesar, which we discussed last week, was written probably in 1599, and The Merchant of Venice, we believe, was written in 1596 or 7. Now, as we discussed, Julius Caesar was a bit of a transition play, starting Shakespeare into a series of his greatest tragedies. But before he really made that shift, he actually wrote some of his most high-spirited and well-known comedies from about 1595 to 1600. And The Merchant of Venice was among the first of these, although it does have a slightly different tone from the others. So in 1595, we get the very famous Midsummer Night's Dream. Then The Merchant of Venice follows. And then between 1598 and 1601, we get Much Ado About Nothing, As You Like It, and Twelfth Night. Which, as I said, are some of his liveliest, richest comedies. And some of my personal favorites of all his plays. So Julius Caesar coming in the middle of those comedies marks the beginning of his eventual shift to tragedy. And I don't think I mentioned this last week, but I do want to point it out. After his string of tragedies and what are known as problem plays, he did return to comedy at the end of his career, or more properly, his final plays are often referred to as romances. And that term does not mean exactly what it means now. So his final plays are The Winter's Tale, Cymbeline, and The Tempest, which are more serious than his early comedies. In fact, sometimes they're called tragicomedies, but they still have this wonderful, miraculous, hopeful quality to them, which is reminiscent of the great comedies from the middle of his career. So The Merchant of Venice shares many attributes with Shakespeare's festive comedies in the late 1590s. But it also deals with some pretty heavy, pretty thorny issues that are dark enough that some critics actually classify this among Shakespeare's so-called problem plays, although it's traditionally just classified as a comedy, which I think is where I would put it as well. So let us explore the storyline of this interesting play. The merchant of Venice, as in the character who is a Venetian merchant, is a man named Antonio, a very wealthy, respectable man with a good life and and good friends. And his best friend is a man named Bassanio, who is a young nobleman, but he maybe doesn't spend money very wisely, and he is frequently helped out financially by his generous friend Antonio. Now Bassanio, this young nobleman, is in love, of course, because this is a comedy and must end in marriage. But he's in love with this extraordinarily rich and beautiful heiress named Portia, who unfortunately is not free to choose whom she will marry. Her late father set up this test for suitors wishing to marry her, and the first suitor who can pass the test she must accept as her husband. So this is, this is almost fairy tale-like, this test. How it's set up is there are three caskets or, or treasure chests, one made of gold, another of silver, and the third of lead, and one of the three contains a portrait of the heiress Portia, and a suitor must successfully guess which casket contains the portrait if he is to pass the test and win her hand in marriage. So Bassanio wants to participate in this test, but all of Portia's other suitors are wealthy nobles and princes, and while Bassanio is of noble birth, he is in debt, and so he can't travel to Portia's home and offer himself as a suitor with a grand display of wealth like all the other suitors have. So the first thing that happens in the play is Bassanio... Asks Antonio for money to enable him to approach Portia in style, and Antonio, without hesitation, agrees. Now, the thing is, Antonio is cash poor. So, as a merchant, he owns ships and merchandise that do make him rich, but he's not able to loan Bassanio any money at the moment. So, he tells Bassanio to take out a loan somewhere, and Antonio will guarantee the money. So, enter Shylock, the Jewish moneylender, one of Shakespeare's most famous or infamous characters. Bassanio gets a loan from Shylock on Antonio's credit, but Shylock puts a condition on the loan, saying that if it is not repaid in three months, Antonio must forfeit a pound of his flesh to Shylock. Yes, a pound of flesh. Even if you've not read the play, you're probably familiar with that phrase. One of the many, many, countless phrases we owe to Shakespeare. So Bassanio and Antonio, perhaps foolishly, agree to be bound by this agreement with Shylock. Bassanio takes out his loan, and Antonio confidently expects his trading vessels to bring him home a good profit very soon, with which he will be able to pay back the loan for his friend. So then we head to Portia's home in Belmont with Bassanio. Portia has already had many suitors approach her and try to pass her father's test of the three caskets, but none so far have succeeded. And let me explain one more thing about the casket test. So the three chests are made of gold, silver, and lead, and they each have a different inscription as well, which is supposed to help the suitors pick between the caskets, although the inscriptions can be interpreted in various ways. So the gold casket reads, "'Who chooseth me shall gain what many men desire.'" In contrast, the silver casket reads, Who chooseth me shall get as much as he deserves. And lastly, the lead casket reads, Who chooseth me must give and hazard all he hath. And in one of these three chests is concealed a picture of Portia, and the first suitor who correctly guesses gets to marry her. So, in true fairy tale style, the third chest, which seems the least likely, is the correct one. It's plain, made out of lead, the inscription does not flatter either Portia or the suitor trying to win her hand, and it doesn't exactly sound very promising. Who chooseth me must give and hazard all he hath. But long story short, Bassanio chooses the correct casket and wins Portia's hand in marriage. And everyone's happy because they were in love with each other already, and so that worked out really well. But now, this happens in Act 3 of the play, out of five acts. So there's a lot of the story still left. We're, We're not ready for the happy ending quite yet. And interestingly, well, so most, if not all, Shakespearean comedies chronicle the maturing process of the hero and or heroine and end with their happy marriage after they've learned whatever they need to learn. Merchant of Venice is a little different in that the hero and heroine are united about halfway through the play, but they haven't actually learned everything they need to learn yet. If they had, the play would end there, but it keeps going after their marriage, which should tell us to keep watching for further character development. And in this case, it's really just Bassanio that still needs to learn something. He has passed the test of the three caskets, which proves him worthy to marry Portia, but he still has a character flaw that needs to be corrected. And we'll talk about what that is soon. But first, just to finish the rundown of the plot of the play, everything suddenly goes wrong after the marriage of Portia and Bassanio, Antonio's ships are lost at sea, and he does not have the funds to repay Bassanio's loan from Shylock, and so he is bound to forfeit a pound of his flesh to Shylock. So, what follows is a trial in Act 4 of the play, which is almost always the crux of a Shakespearean drama, Act 4. And Shylock demands justice for himself, while everyone else pleads for mercy for Antonio. And without spoiling too much, let's just say that one of the characters gets themselves conveniently installed in the courtroom, disguised as a lawyer and does a very neat job of legally rescuing Antonio from what would, of course, have been death if Shylock had been allowed to cut out a pound of flesh from his body. So that is the overarching storyline, really two interwoven stories. On the one hand, the loan from Shylock, um, the bond for the pound of flesh from Antonio, and ultimately the trial, and on the other hand, the casket test and Bassanio's courtship and eventual marriage to Portia. And so Bassanio is not really the main character, but he is the main link between these two connected plot lines as Antonio's friend and Portia's suitor. And I think he is the character that has the most to learn as well. And so thematically, the play is largely about his maturing process. So let's start there with our discussion of the play's themes. What is the quality of Bassanio's character, and what does he need to learn in this story? Well, as we see in the beginning, he is not great with money. He seems to spend a lot and borrow a lot from his friends, or at least Antonio, in order to cover his spending and get out of debt. That said, he's not what you'd call money obsessed. He's not portrayed as greedy or conceited or miserly or or anything of that kind. In fact, he's portrayed as having a generous nature. So he is kind of a spendthrift and he is a bit foolish about money especially, but he seems to be well-meaning on the whole A couple of key adjectives that come up a few times throughout the play are prodigal and liberal. Prodigal meaning extravagant or excessive, especially with regard to money, and liberal being a slightly more positive spin on a similar idea. Very generous, perhaps too generous. I think these words pinpoint Bassanio's central weakness. First of all, he's prodigal. He's a little extravagant with his own and his friends' money, trying to live a certain lifestyle he wants and trying to portray himself lavishly as a wealthy suitor of Portia when he really can't afford it. Personally, I think his prodigality is somewhat checked by the casket test itself. He's forced to think through the three inscriptions for gold, "'who chooseth me shall gain what many men desire. "'For silver, who chooseth me shall get as much as he deserves. "'And for lead, who chooseth me must give and hazard all he hath.'" And as he's thinking through these three options and the nature of the metals, gold, silver, and lead, we get a soliloquy from him in which he ponders the appearance of things And how often a showy exterior conceals a disappointing interior. And so as a result of this, he refuses to choose the gold or silver caskets and correctly picks the humble lead casket instead. And personally, I think this ushers in a slight shift in his own life. He's realizing that display doesn't really matter, that humility and contentment are preferable to a prodigal lifestyle. So that is step one. But as I said, the play continues after Bassanio's courtship and marriage, so he still has something more to learn. And the flaw he still has is liberality. Now, obviously, generosity is a positive character trait. But Bassanio tends to be generous or liberal with other people's stuff, which is not such a positive trait. He doesn't realize that previous relationships and promises and obligations should sometimes override the impulse to share and give without restraint, especially if you're giving someone else's things. Especially in his new marriage relationship, there are certain commitments that should bind him in ways he's not used to. And so this last learning curve plays out mostly in Act Five. I I don't want to spoil the whole play, so I'm not going to discuss what happens that teaches Bassanio this lesson about over-generosity. But that's kind of the main point of Act Five of the play, um, just for reference, if you read the play yourself. Occasionally, people get through Act Five of Merchant of Venice and are kind of confused about why it even exists. It is a little weird and unrealistic and almost goofy, I admit, but you have to keep in mind that the whole Bassanio story has this fairy tale quality to it, and so you just have to go with it. You have to accept the strangeness and try to understand Shakespeare's purpose, which in the case of Act Five, is teaching Bassanio not to break commitments. Now, connected to this is the play's other main thematic thread, played out in the conflict between Shylock and Antonio. So if Bassanio's character development centers around this tension or balance between generosity and faithfulness, The theme that comes out in the trial is that of mercy and justice, and how those two do or do not work together. And I hope we will eventually see that these two thematic threads are kind of variations on the same theme. In different ways, through the different characters in the play, Shakespeare is exploring aspects of justice, or faithfulness, or you could say law, or obligations or promises. And at the same time, he's exploring the apparent opposite of these things. Mercy, or you could say generosity, graciousness, liberality, freedom. What is the proper relationship between these two seemingly opposite qualities? Bassanio learns that vows should limit his liberality. On the flip side, what we learn from the trial is that mercy seasons justice. That's a quote from Act 4. Law is good and helpful and necessary, but if disconnected from mercy and forgiveness, it becomes ruthless. Shylock is merciless, which is why he's the villain, but... Unfortunately for him, he learns that if you pursue the letter of the law to its utmost end, the law eventually turns on you, and you must pray for mercy if you don't want to be destroyed. We need both justice and mercy. One is not sufficient without the other. So Bassanio's liberal tendencies are destructive without the restraints of responsibility. Shylock's Uncompromising demand for justice is cruel without the mitigating force of mercy. Extremes are dangerous. Balance is healthy. Now, as you might expect, I explain all this, and I do think it's true to the text, but it is a bit of a simplification of all that Shakespeare's doing here, I admit. This is just the bite-sized version. <laughs> But what Shakespeare actually gives us is something more complex and nuanced and difficult to summarize than what I've just offered. We have some complicating factors, like a subplot involving Shylock's daughter, and it somewhat tangles these themes and mirrors imagery from the main plot lines, but gives us new angles. So that has to be wrestled with. Also, if we're saying that commitments... Override personal extravagance, what do you do when you have multiple commitments that conflict with each other? One of the things Shakespeare is interested in with this play and some of his others as well is the potential conflict between different types of relationships. Marriage versus friendship, for instance. Which should overrule the other if they clash? Or does it just depend on the specific scenario? Is Bassanio's friendship and debt to Antonio more or less important than his new obligation as husband to Portia? Or what about our relationship to the law, or to things that maybe have been imposed on us by other people, against our will? What is the balance between freedom and duty in that case? How do we know when we should strictly follow someone's command or when we should be allowed to break free. We have two fathers and daughters in the Merchant of Venice, Portia and her deceased father, and Shylock and his daughter, Jessica. Portia abides by her father's wishes and marries the suitor who passes the test that he created before his death. Jessica, in contrast, completely rebels against her father but they're both portrayed positively. Are they both right? If they are, then why is one right to be governed by her father's will and the other right to disobey? There are no easy answers, and I'm not going to try to offer any because we would have to look too deeply at the text for the limited scope of this episode. But if you should choose to read the play for yourself, then perhaps some of these questions and the overarching thematic dichotomy I've discussed may be helpful as you study the play on your own. Now, I have to address one more issue before I finish. And it's actually one of the main things people tend to discuss when talking about The Merchant of Venice. But I didn't want to introduce it earlier for fear it would kind of take over the episode. The issue is, this play is often regarded as anti-Semitic and has historically been used for anti-Semitic purposes. So Shylock the moneylender is a Jew, and tensions between him and the Christian characters run through the play as a kind of undercurrent. So obviously Shylock is the bad guy. Does that make the play anti-Semitic? Personally, I don't necessarily think so. Now, I'm not going to try to argue whether Shakespeare himself was anti-Semitic. He may have been. It's hard to say, definitely. Obviously, he was not a Jew himself, and in fact, Jews had been expelled from England by his time, so he probably didn't know any Jews personally, and so his ideas about Judaism and its adherents may well have been based on hearsay or tradition or stereotypes or whatever. Why he chose to make the character Shylock Jewish is up for debate, and I'm not here to add my voice to the clamor on that question. But the reason I think The Merchant of Venice does not have to be interpreted as anti-Semitic is this. Shylock's villainy is not portrayed as stemming from his Judaism. His villainy is not found in his religion, but in his personal character of ruthless hatred and vengefulness. It's worth noting, his daughter Jessica is portrayed positively. Yes, she converts to Christianity in the play, but she's still in no way written off because of being a Jew by birth, which is what I would expect from an anti-Semitic writer. Shakespeare writes as a Christian, and so obviously he believes that Christianity is true and believes that conversion to Christianity is the only real happy ending he can give to his characters. Now, speaking of the ultimate fate of the Jewish characters in The Merchant of Venice, we do have to talk just for a moment about Shylock's fate. Many readers and critics accuse the Christian characters in the play of being unmerciful to Shylock right after they've talked on and on about how important mercy is. Now, I don't think these critics are considering the whole picture of this play. Shylock is not evil personified or anything so extreme. He has very sympathetic characteristics. He has legitimately suffered. He is fully human And, of course, he deserves mercy as much as any of us deserve it. That said, we must not lose sight of the fact that he is an attempted murderer. His ruthless insistence that Antonio forfeit the promised pound of flesh is nothing short of attempted murder. That's really bad. (laughs) And considering that, I think he receives a lot of mercy he is not punished nearly to the extent that he could have been. His life is spared, first of all, which was definitely at risk for his crime. And Antonio, who could have claimed half of Shylock's wealth in reparation, refuses and asks that the money instead just be kept in trust for Shylock's daughter, Jessica, upon Shylock's death. So Shylock's attempted murder victim profits in no way and extends considerable mercy to his enemy. Now, the last thing, however, that trips up audiences and critics both is that what Antonio does require is that Shylock converts to Christianity. Now, you can read this in two ways. Most people see it as cruel and controlling and immoral, a forced conversion. Now, I personally am not on board with forced conversion, don't get me wrong, but we have to try to see this from Shakespeare's perspective, the perspective of a Christian during a time when compelled conversion was practiced and, I believe, was at least sometimes regarded as an act of mercy. Now, this is obviously not the freedom of religion that you and I believe in, but just consider this— Shylock throughout the play swears on his faith that he will have Antonio's pound of flesh and he breaks that oath when the law turns against him in the trial and he finally stops his pursuit of his bond. So he has in some sense perjured his soul. He's practically damned himself by his broken oath. With this being the case couldn't a forced conversion to Christianity be understood by people in this time and place as mercy? Now, I agree, it's up for interpretation. It wouldn't be Shakespeare if everything were clear-cut and simplistic. But the Christian characters in this play are so often viewed as harsh hypocritical that I just wanted to push back against that interpretation a little so that we don't slip into a one-sided reading of the play and miss its nuances and possibilities. Really, nowadays, this play gets kind of a bad rap. Critics tend to believe either that Shakespeare is anti-Semitic because he created a Jewish villain, or that we're reading this wrong and Shakespeare actually is sympathetic towards Shylock and the Christian characters in the play are the real objects of Shakespeare's criticism because of their prejudice. Now those are two pretty dissimilar readings of the play and it's remarkable that the same text invites such different interpretations but that's the way Shakespeare works. And those aren't the only two possible readings. I wouldn't say I've offered a complete reading of the play in this episode, but I've tried to share some thoughts that challenge somewhat both of these two main interpretations, and I hope this discussion helps you think independently about some of the issues that have been raised. I do believe that the themes I talked about originally, with Bassanio's character development and the reconciliation of justice and mercy in the trial, those, in my mind, are the main point of the play. Jewish and Christian beliefs do get involved, particularly their views on justice and mercy, but I don't think Shakespeare intended religious differences to be the central issue at stake. I do, of course, recommend this play if you haven't read it. It certainly gives a lot of food for thought, and has quite a legacy of its own, sort of like we discussed with Julius Caesar. There's a very famous speech in the trial scene that begins with the words, The quality of mercy is not strained, it droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven. Also the phrase, all that glitters is not gold, originates from this play, the concept had been stated before, but Shakespeare actually phrased it in a way that has stuck around for four centuries. So that's just that's just a couple lines you will hear quoted from The Merchant of Venice. It's worth reading for its complex moral issues and its character development. I will warn you, it's not quite as clean as Julius Caesar uh, as far as off-color humor goes. There's a bit more of that here. But honestly, the majority is still not stuff you'll pick up on unless you're pretty well versed in Shakespearean double entendre or have footnotes that explain it all, which is kind of annoying, actually. So if you're interested in reading The Merchant of Venice or Julius Caesar, for that matter, I recommend them both. And I will just give you a tip if you are an audiobook reader like I am. Both of these plays have been made into full-cast, unabridged audio dramatizations that are available through Audible or Scribd or various other audiobook resources. Audio editions of Shakespeare in some ways, I think, are an ideal way to experience his plays because you don't get all of the inappropriate visual content that often finds its way into stage productions But you do get the help of actors to give expression to Shakespeare's language, and that can be really helpful for understanding what his words even mean sometimes. So I would definitely recommend looking into audio dramatizations of these plays if you're interested. So thanks for listening to my explorations of Shakespeare these last two weeks. I do hope to return to Shakespeare in future, so let me know if you enjoyed these episodes and tell me which Shakespeare plays you would like me to cover in future discussions. I would love your input. Now next week, we are going in a different direction. I will be discussing Rudyard Kipling's classic adventure novel, Captain's Courageous. This is a fun, lighthearted read compared to the heavy intricate works of Shakespeare we've been exploring, so I hope you tune in next Wednesday and enjoy The Change of Tone. As always, I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson, and you can learn more about me and my writing by visiting my website, KittyWamproductions.com. Thanks for listening.